Welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Sonia Sambi, correspondent here at Eco Business. On today's show, we're going to dive deep into the topic of sand in Singapore, which is actually much more controversial than it sounds, as it is the building block of urban development and is a highly sought after commodity. Especially so for a country like Singapore, which has increased its land area by 22% since its independence in 1965. Through various land reclamation projects, Singapore has established itself to be the world's largest importer of sand. While a third of the world is made up of deserts, this sand cannot be used in construction because it's the wrong shape. So sand and gravel are removed from riverbeds, lakes, the oceans and beaches, oftentimes at the expense of local communities across Southeast Asia. Joining today's podcast is Madamita Adenari, Senior Sustainability Strategist at Forum for the Future. She's done extensive research on land use, as well as the language surrounding sand and land reclamation in Singapore. Welcome to the show, Madhu. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much for inviting me. So let's begin perhaps with a short introduction of yourself and how you started researching the topic of sand. So sometime in 2019, I started my master's at the London School of Economics. And I was uh, also a fellow with the Atlantic Fellows uh, Program for Social and Economic Equity. Um, And I was uh, supposed to do a dissertation and I had to find a dissertation topic and I didn't know what to go with. Uh, But in the end, uh, what convinced me to look at sand was I was reading a book called um, The World in a Grain by Vince Beiser. And that book illuminated a lot about the the sand trade, how it works, uh, the different issues with the sector, as well as uh, the resource crisis that we're heading towards. And, And there was one thing in the book that really hit me which was the point that Singapore is the world's largest importer of sand and that we have quite critical issues, ecological and social justice issues um, that are related to the, uh, to the commodity of sand. So I was puzzled by this partly because I had not heard about uh, Singapore being such a big demander of this product. And I also didn't know much about, I hadn't heard much about it outside of uh, resource wars, uh, the fact that there is a resource um, crisis and that there are countries banning sand into coming into Singapore was the last I had heard of the issue. So I hadn't quite um, grasped the gravity of it. And I was uh, puzzled by the silence around it. I was puzzled by the fact that not many people were talking about it, at least in 2019. So I was quite interested in learning more about the topic and that became my entry point to starting this research. And while doing your research, what were some road bumps that you encountered? Hmm. Um, Well, so I've worked in the sustainability scene based off of Singapore for, at that point of time, it was five years. Uh, And I was, I had a lot of different friends in the sustainability scene, so I thought that it should be fairly easy to be able to speak to government officials, as well as people who are actually involved in the sand trade. And as I got into it, I think uh, the very first thing was I asked a friend 
whether I could speak to someone um, in, in the government. And she was, I think she was with the BCA, which is the Building and Construction Authority. Uh, and she said she would check with her box. And she came back and she said, perhaps, and she didn't say this to me. She said this to, a, uh, to my friend. She said, perhaps mother shouldn't be looking into this topic because uh, it's very secretive. We don't talk about it outside. And it's a very small group of people who are allowed and authorized to talk about it even within the BCA. So mm -hmm. she, was, she said something like, perhaps this, was, this will not be the most fruitful dissertation topic and maybe she should be exploring others. So that was the very first roadblock. And I decided to veer away from trade data. So part of the secrecy is around what gets traded, what's the quantity of it, and, and the, the specific product specifications around that. Um, but when it comes to things like stories, like how do people talk about sand? How do we understand this issue? Why do we not talk about it? I had some of these kinds of more fundamental questions, which didn't require trade data. It just required an understanding of what stories people have around sand or not have around sand. Um, and I was looking, I ended up asking the question of what are the current scripts or how do we talk about sand right now? And what are the alternatives? Are there emerging alternatives to how we think about sand in Singapore? And that became my frame. Uh, and I was trying to find where there was spaces of either resistance or questioning or just alternative stories around this issue. When I was doing my research, I was finding that the most interesting contingent of people asking thoughtful questions around sand were actually artists. Um, and they were making arts, they were um, coming up with questions. Someone was calling it the methodology of fictocriticism, using fiction as a form of criticism against uh, practices around sand. So that became quite interesting. So given the roadblocks that I was facing um, and the kind of uh, quite informal ways in which people were telling me that this was going to be quite hard for me, I decided to work with uh, looking at stories and working with a different group instead of business or government um, sector individuals, working with uh, artists as well as civil engineers instead. And that became a much more productive research uh, topic and I was uh, allowed to continue on with it. The research sounds fascinating. And before we dive deep into um, the findings of your research, I wanted to take a step back and ask why the secrecy around uh, surrounding sand, why is it such a controversial mm -hmm. topic? To be honest, that was part of my research question. And I had some ideas of why that might be. Part of it, I think, is that when we think of the biggest environmental issues, uh, we tend to think about things like fossil fuel extraction, or we tend to think about things like um, food, the food insecurity and food uh, sustainability as a crisis. Um, but when it comes to something like sand, it becomes a lot more invisible. You can't you don't have a massive uh, mining plant like you would have for fossil fuels, or you don't have big plantations. Uh, dredging operations for sand tend to be much further out. So there is something about the lack of visibility of the, the trade of sand itself. So let me talk a little bit about the supply chain. 
how it usually happens is it starts with um, companies that are taking sand through a process called dredging from parts of uh, the region in Southeast Asia where sand is available. And these tend to be not in uh, cosmopolitan or in the city center areas, but they tend to be in far off remote rural areas. Um, and because of that, the impacts of the issue tend to be much further out. They're not in public purview uh, and people know, know less about it. And, and part of my thinking, and I don't know if this is completely right, is that sand, at least in the Singaporean context, is remade into very different things. The scale of its extraction and use is incredible. It's turned into so many different things. And silica is a core ingredient in anything from toothpastes to, um, to, to clay. So this is a product that is so extensively used, but it's so, it's so remade that by the time you are consuming something that has sand in it, whether it's a, a building or whether it's land that's used for land reclamation, it's no longer considered sand anymore. So I think that there's something about the reconstitution of the material that also makes it less visible and harder for people to talk about. Okay, and, and you mentioned that while you were doing some research, you found that um, artists were the main people speaking up about this topic and not so much maybe environmentalists. Uh, why do you think that was the case? My sense of it is that in Singapore, looking at the history of civil society uh, and the growth of civic engagements around environmental issues is that uh, the environmental community has been working very closely with the state on environmental issues and rightfully so. We are very lucky to be in a country where the government is interested and has been promoting and leading on environmental issues like decarbonization um, as well as things like greening, having a green country has been a governmental priority. So I think the environmental community, rightfully so, has taken a path of working closely with the state rather than in opposition to the state. And part of this ideological stance, while it has really progressed the, the different causes around environmentalism, some of the issues that are against state interests or seem to be against state interests or tend to be quite secretive, as we've said, um, don't really come under that, uh, that modality of working closely or being an ally with the state. This requires some level of activism to say, I don't think this is working very well, or that there are some practices that we've conducted as a state that might be harmful. I know that there was some important activism around um, land reclamation and the environmental impacts of it particularly, um, I think sometime in the 80s or 90s, where it was affecting coral growth in parts of Singapore, uh, Singapore's coasts. And I know that there was a, a small environmental movement to say, can we protect our corals and reduce the, the level of pollution coming out of reclamation projects. But even then, I think part of the issue was in problem definition. So much of it was focused on the environmental impacts that are happening in Singapore, uh, that that particular way of tackling the problem didn't look at the root causes of how the demand for sand is constructed. 
what are the environmental impacts in the source countries, countries like Malaysia or in Indonesia and, and Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, and, and a lot of these countries have started and are continuing their ban of um, sand exportation to Singapore. I think part of the reason why the communities focus on land reclamation has only been in pockets rather than being in a sort of a consolidated movement is that I think it's just been uh, harder to get people coming around this topic and think, thinking deeply about something when it's been so misaligned with where the state priorities are. That is really interesting. And I think really that, that sense of invisibility, the fact that everything is happening away from Singapore, and that's mm. why um, the activism maybe might not be as strong, I think sets up a really good context for um, our listeners. So moving on into the findings from your research, you mentioned that you were looking at the language surrounding sand and land reclamation. And um, I'm wondering what are the different scripts that you've, you've found and how to justify the continuation of sand extraction in Singapore? Hmm. So perhaps a little bit of context on why Singapore uses so much sand might be a good start before go going into the reasons and the narratives around sand. Mm -hmm. So while sand is used as a core product for various parts of the urban economy, like I've said, cement, glass, and various other products, in Singapore, we have historically mostly used sand as a way of creating more land. As a land-scarce country uh, and a country that is so small, the thinking has been that we need to really grow and we need proper amounts of land to be able to accommodate our citizens and our inhabitants with a good mode of living, whether it's through recreation, whether it's through accommodation, whether it's through defense, lots of different things. And in order for us to have a good life, we need a good amount of land. And for us to keep growing and for us to keep being able to have the level of uh, productivity and economic efficiency that we need land. Um, and this is a practice, land reclamation is a practice, did not start with the current Singaporean government. It started way earlier in the, when Singapore was part of the, the British colony. Over time, what happened though is as Singapore gained its independence, land reclamation became part of the state policy of creating more land in order to translate that into growth as well as better standards of living for Singaporean people. And in that process, you have areas like Tanjong Pagar, uh, Marina Bay, lots of different parts of Singapore that were reclaimed using hill cuts, basically cutting down different hills in Singapore in order to extend it to make more land. Um, and as these land resources, what they call hill cuts, got exhausted, uh, what the Singaporean government started doing was to create a blueprint of how the country wanted to grow, what the land reclamation plan was, and started importing sand from Malaysia as well as in Indonesia. Uh, there were impacts like uh, the sand being an important nesting site for fish. And as sand was being taken from people's backyards, uh, coastal livelihoods of fishermen and fishing communities were being affected. So in that process, what has happened is that Singapore has taken its sand from various other parts of Southeast Asia, uh, so countries like Myanmar and Cambodia 
as well as the Philippines are all also now giving to towards Singapore's demand for sand. The reason why all of this history and the context is important in understanding narrative is that there is this is all contributing to the secrecy around sand. Uh, the fact that countries are banning their trade of sand to Singapore means that there is this level of touchiness or political sensitivity around sand in that it makes it, um, it it's requisite to have certain narratives in order to uh, to make this practice defensible, whether it's morally defensible or whether it's economically defensible. So given these contexts, the kind of three key narratives that I was picking up that are all quite clear is the first narrative of growth, that we actually need more land in order for us to be able to grow. And this is just economically pragmatic. No matter what the consequences, we, we are able to have a practice that for a land-constrained country like Singapore, we, there is a technology such as land reclamation in the first place enables us to create more land, grow, have uh, pe people be able to do defense um, practices or whether it's build more new buildings or whether it's create tourist sites or office buildings in, uh, to create our economic hub in the central business dis district. We've been managed to create all of this new land and translate it to economic growth and productivity. And it's, it's, it's so entrenched and it's so ingrained in us that it, it almost makes no sense to question it or to think alternatively from it. So that is the one frame that you always get. The second narrative that I was hearing, particularly from the civil engineers that I spoke to, was that we've actually gotten a lot better at it. We used to have a practice that was environmentally quite pollutive. Um, and now this practice is so good that it's actually a win-win. And the reason why it's a win-win is one, the amount of harm, the amount of sand we take from other countries is reduced to almost by 90%, according to some estimates. And there is a sense that by doing, by having more ethical practices and by being more resource efficient and creating a circular economy, we are actually doing something that's good for both parties. And therefore this is a good and right practice. And this is a, a form of um, defending or also justifying the practice of land reclamation by making it seem as a win-win. Um, and of course, this point is not completely contested. It is true that the practices have improved over time, but one of the questions is, because there is so much secrecy around it, you don't quite know what are the actual environmental impact assessments that uh, projects are doing. And so much of the data is behind closed doors or people working on this issue have signed uh, NDAs. So we don't quite really know what is the due diligence that's being done and what is the, the basis when someone says this is win-win, how can they back that without that data being public? So that is something that is questioned as, is it truly win-win? We don't fully really know. And the final um, narrative that we hear quite a lot is uh, the astonishing silence around this topic. So I have talked about the secrecy and I've also talked about the fact that given the number of sand bans from other countries, this has become a politically sensitive topic. And when people raise it, often they have, um, often they face all sorts of resistance. I've spoken to researchers 
who told me that their grants were not renewed or they, they weren't able to attract any form of funding. Uh, teachers who couldn't get their curriculum around land reclamation into, into their modules or uh, university curriculum. We, I've also heard of uh, other researchers who were just discouraged by their tutors to not pursue the topic because there's just not enough information out there. Um, and also, there is also where people have raised grievances, it's often a lot of baby face, a lot of dismissal to say, well, you don't have the data, so you don't know what you're talking about. Or if you're a villager in Cambodia or Vietnam or in Indonesia who's complaining about land reclamation, uh, often these concerns are often dismissed because, well, this is just a small group or small contingent of people who are complaining. But actually, so many of uh, the people there are gaining economically from this practice. So we, should, we shouldn't really talk about it or this is a very biased form of um, biased form of contestation and therefore where contestation of happens or where people have true grievances it's often dismissed or seen as a bias because there isn't enough information out there or they are not seen to be impartial so there is this sense of because there is not enough information out there or because there is a lot of silence out of it so this is a product that is so heavily mined but uh, also heavily taken, but we don't have any ways of really understanding what the systemic picture of its extraction is and what its full range of impacts are beyond these localized uh, impacts. So there is something about the fact that there is a silence of around fully understanding the scale of its impact as well. So yeah, the three kinds of, I spoke a lot, but the three main narratives are that around growth as being taken for granted is, is a necessary evil. Uh, the second being that this is something that is a win-win. It's a part of a circular economy. Um, and the third being just a, a lot of silence around the topic. Uh, this, these being the key ways in which people talk about um, sand. Yeah, thank you for um, setting such a rich history and, and context up and then moving into the three different um, scripts. And I mean, we do see with, I think the growth narrative, um, I think it is very much so ingrained in a lot of um, Singaporeans' minds in that even when we talk about land use planning, it's always um, resource scarce, land scarce Singapore, we have to think about growth and, and that justifies a lot of like the, the construction and building over even natural um, spaces in Singapore. Mm. And right. with, with the second script of mutual benefit, I think, um, what struck me was this narrative of win-win. Um, even though we have seen many instances of these um, communities that are being um, displaced due to the, the massive amounts of uh, sand extraction. So it is interesting that these narratives have become dominant um, mm. and, and we have accepted them as the norm. And I'm wondering um, what were the alternative scripts that you've, um, you've encountered uh, or you've come up with that we can look at and how do you think we can begin to, to change the mindset around these very, very sticky uh, scripts? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there is no easy answer here. A, a lot of the existing solutions that are around sand are what I've spoken about, which is to reduce uh, the use of sand as much as possible and to create resource efficiencies and circular uh, economies through 
alternative materials outside of sand. I know the Singaporean kind of researchers as well as the governments as well are looking into things like new sand. Uh, my critique to some of these kinds of solutions is that they are very good at helping us reduce the use of this material, but they are not fully understanding the impacts of its use and the historical uh, impact that we have already caused through the demand of sand. And as I was talking to different people, particularly the artists and researchers that I spoke to, one of the things that they spoke about quite a lot is in building this awareness and even understanding what is sand used for, like uh, what, how do we have this systemic picture of how sand is used um, is quite critical. If we only see it as a product or as a commodity without understanding what its purpose is in nature and how people relate to it, that is, uh, we are always going to be stuck with a sort of an engineering mindset towards can we re reduce its use without fully appreciating what its impacts are and how we engage with it. Another thing we spoke about uh, with my interviewees around is uh, it was the histories of sand use and the fact that we have some pretty interesting histories of this product that is part of the nation building story of this country uh, without which we couldn't have grown in the way that we had. And I think Understanding our story is not just looking at it through sand as a product, but also understanding the entanglements around sand, which is that there was so much incredible amounts of land use change that Singapore has experienced, whether through uh, the cultivation of Gambia, uh, through the amounts of land use change that we've seen as we've urbanized, as well as through the expansion of our ports, airports, as well as our um, petrochemical refineries. So there is something about that as well is just being able to see sand as part of the wider story of land use change in Singapore as being quite critical as well. The other thing is just to explore the, the histories of exploitation and, and oppression that come with sand, such as the fact that the earliest forms of hill cuts, the, you, you needed people to be able to dredge and cut down hills in Singapore and creating this country that's a bit of a pancake. It's been flattened and expanded by its sides. All of that work was done by indentured workers um, in, in the colonial times. And that practice has continued in that you have most of the people doing land reclamation work uh, and working on the sites and doing the land tending tend to be low-income migrant workers right now. So there is something about expanding the story of sand beyond its use as the resource to all its different interesting entanglements and how much that has been part of our national story. The, the final thing that um, I would say is quite critical as a, a way forward or having an alternate script or an alternate narrative is not just understanding the history, but changing our relationship with nature in Singapore. And I think this is quite critical we live in a country that by virtue of its land scarcity, I think many Singaporeans have come to take for granted that we don't have nature or that nature is not a big deal in Singapore because we're so urbanized. Yet we have some incredible biodiversity uh, and we are part of a, a biodiverse region or we are a biodiversity hotspot. And we have incredible coral, snake, 
mammal mammalian biodiversity in this country. And a lot of that has been lost in the narratives of growth. And I think that a changing relationality, uh, and it's start, it started to happen with the pandemic in that most people are finding respite in our natural spaces, so much so that our green corridor is, is, is filled with people in a way that it wasn't pre-pandemic. And there is something about having a huge opportunity to reconnect with our land and not feel so disconnected from our land. Part of our development story and what's been quite unique about Singapore is that our state holds a lot of land. Most of our land is held by the state, which is different from most of the countries in the world, let alone this region. And you might even say countries like Indonesia or in, in the Philippines, where they have their own reclamation projects, um, a lot of that is being done by private developers because the, set, the, the land is not owned by the government. So there is an incredible opportunity in Singapore because so much land is state-owned. There is an uh, ability to manage that land and to, to look at the trade-offs and make sure that it benefits as, as wide a range of people as possible unlike in certain other countries. However, part of the problem with that is that we continue to be quite disconnected from our land. Most people don't own our land. We are living in housing development board buildings, or we are living in pieces of land where we are not allowed to tend to that land in a way that uh, people would do in rural countries or in other parts of the world. So there is something about the fact that we have our development has resulted in a form of disconnection to our land, that we need to rebuild our relationship with it, feel a sense of agency to it, and feel a sense of care and wanting to, to tend to the land in a way that we don't think about in Singapore right now. Even the concept of indigeneity is so far lost. The part of our history of land reclamation is that people who lived in the coasts of Singapore who had a much stronger relationship to the coast with a strong maritime culture were moved to the central parts of Singapore so, so as to make way for land reclamation. And in that process, a lot of those sorts of historical relationships with our coast and with land has been torn apart. Like we don't have that anymore. And I think you have people like um, uh, the Orang Lawit communities that are reclaiming those stories and bringing those stories back to the fore. And I think that it is quite critical to bring back that relationality, to have a changing relationship, to feel like we have a stake in this piece of land is a, a critical change that, that can and needs to happen for us to be able to tell different stories around land in Singapore. I really love that, especially thinking about um, our own personal connection to the land. And then you may start to um, tease out, you know, what exactly our land consists of. And then thinking about, um, um, yeah, the origin of sand and even just tracing it back to um, our history. So mm. I guess, um, you know, with an eye on the time, um, a last question for you is, uh, since... Mm. Starting your research in 2019, have you seen a growing interest in this move towards um, deeper considerations of the land, of um, exploring histories of exploitation or understanding the entanglements around sand and thinking of it as a part of our land use change? Mm. I would say that in the last couple of years, there has been a definite a rise in interest 
around looking at our land reclamation histories. Um, I would say part of it is the incredible amount of civil, uh, civil society activism coming out of our youths uh, through movements like uh, the Singapore Climate Rally, as well as different forms of uh, communities who are bringing questions around histories of land reclamation. Uh, you've got Instagram accounts like uh, the Orang Laut uh, group where they are raising these stories uh, of history into that, uh, as well as arts. Uh, for instance, you have a great exhibition that's going on at the uh, STPI right now by the artist Charles Lin, which is all looking at, which is looking at our relationship with the coast and our histories of land reclamation and pre-reclamation land use. So there are there is more and more of it than than I started with, I must say. But I don't know how much of it is a real increase in interest or whether it's just that I am researching into this topic and that I'm getting to learn all of these forms of interest. Uh, by building my relationships with people who are looking into this topic. I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that there is a slight uh, increase in awareness around these issues. What I am failing to see, though, is people asking questions in a bold way. There is still a lot of fear in being able to know whether I can talk about this subject, who can I talk about it to, and uh, is it what are the sort of OB markers around sand? And there is something around the silence of it, um, which makes it even trickier uh, in being able to ask meaningful questions and engagements around it. Uh, I was in a, uh, a land, rec uh, uh, it was a land policy consultation for the long-term plan review, um, which was done by the URA as well as uh, the National Youth Council. And it was a really productive and useful consultation where they spoke to youths from civil society from different walks of life. Um, and the question of land reclamation came up in that consultation, uh, but it wasn't something that was, uh, that, that didn't have much oxygen. Not many people were asking about it and there wasn't enough time to be able to talk about it. And I hope that as we move forward in these kinds of civic engagements, as well as in ways uh, in which people who are touching sand are thinking about it, are thinking more expansively. And this is not just um, restricted to civil society, but it's also in the purview of decision makers who are part of creating this demand and, and, and the practices that go around it. So that's what I would love to be seeing and seeding in, uh, in the movement towards looking at land reclamation and seeing how it can be better than, than it has been. I think that there are lots of promising signs that there have been a lot of research and development going into alternative materials and geoengineering and geosciences and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think that to look at the justice angle of this issue from these decision-making perspectives is a huge opportunity for leadership in a, from a country that is already being such a, a big leader in this space. I think there is just an opportunity to push that leadership to a much greater level. Okay, I know I said that was going to be the last question, but I'm curious, um, for you personally, how do you, I guess, overcome the fear or this, um, this secrecy around sand? Why are you so bold to speak up about it? Um, I think 
when I was deciding whether to take on this project, uh, I was given a choice. I was given a choice of, do I want to take this topic or something else? Um, and I had heard stories of non-Singaporeans who were looking into it, who were being evicted from the country or uh, who were being told not to ask these questions. And I realized that I have a privilege, which is as a Singaporean citizen who was born in this country, I feel um, that I have the agency to ask these questions without similar repercussions, because this is what it means to be an active citizen. It is to believe that we can do better and that to hold accountable doesn't mean to say, oh, the government isn't doing anything or that everyone's evil, but to say that I think there's a lot of advances that's already been done, but that we can do much better. So I think that criticism needs to come from a place of hope and of uh, that, and it needs to be constructive. It, it cannot just be about saying everything is not working, but about saying actually this is what the next steps might look like. And, and I think every single person I've spoke to who are researching into this topic and putting themselves out there to want to learn more and to do more around this have all talked about it as far from being critical, this is about being active citizens. And this is our form of, of love and national duty uh, to the country. I think that's a really nice place to end the podcast today. And I definitely resonate with that in that a lot of what we are talking about um, here and, and elsewhere in our social justice issues is that we, it comes from a place of love, of a place of um, looking at the fringes of um, society and the stories that we have, we are not talking about enough. And then, you know, talking about them and, and granting them more visibility and also um, knowing that um, all these stories make up a part of Singapore. Mm. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Madhu. Thank you so much, Sonia, for hosting me. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com. Follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you for listening. 